2: You're listening to TV's Top Five, the Hollywood Reporters TV Podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. Hi Dan, welcome back from vacation. Thank
3: you. You welcome back on vacation as well. And thank
2: you from you to you too.
3: Uh yes, I, I have whatever restfulness I, I had a few days ago is largely gone, but uh but you know, I'm I'm sure this is about as fresh as we get.
2: <laughs> yep, same here, same here. I'm a little jet lagged, but. Eh, we we'll pass. Anyway, well, we got a big episode this week, making up for lost time. We are joined later in the episode by Bruce Miller, the showrunner for Hulu's The Handmaid's Tale. But before we get into that, we're going to go through some headlines. We'll talk a little bit about House of the Dragon and Dan Critic's Corner. Lots to talk about with the Lord of the Rings. So before we get into all that, we're going to start where we usually do, with headlines.
3: Number one. In Renewals, HBO Max has picked up Harley Quinn for a fourth season with a new showrunner taking over as former TV's top five guests Patrick Schumacher and Justin Halperin prep its animated spinoff. Curb Your Enthusiasm will also be back for a 12th season on HBO.
2: On the new series front, ABC has added Milo Ventimiglia-led drama The Company You Keep to its mid-season schedule, where it will join crime drama Will Trent. Will Trent.
3: What a fine and exciting name for TV shows. I wish people would be more creative. Anywho.
2: Yeah, but Milo on ABC makes a lot of sense. It absolutely does. And and fine. I just,
3: Will Trent is not the name of a TV show. Anywho.
2: No, but it's the name of a book series.
3: Well, still. Anyway, Netflix has canceled its live-action Resident Evil TV series after a single season. Resident Evil in Peace, Uh, the streaming giant has also renewed Umbrella Academy for a fourth and final season.
2: In castings, Jeffrey Dean Morgan will reunite with former Supernatural boss Eric Kripke after booking a recurring role on the fourth season of Amazon's The Boys.
3: In Departures news, Euphoria favorite Barbie Ferreira recently announced that she's leaving the HBO drama after a two-season run ahead of its third season. In other, That's cast- a bummer. It is. It is indeed. Uh, in other cast Departures, Kelly Giddish is exiting NBC's Law & Order SVU after 12 seasons. And this is breaking as we are recording it over at SNL. Regulars Alex Moffat, Melissa Villasenor, and featured player Aristotle Athari are leaving ahead of season 48. And that's a lot of people leaving SNL because those three join A.D. Bryant, Pete Davidson, Kate McKinnon, and Kyle Mooney, whose departures were announced at the end of last season. So, phew.
2: Yeah, lots of changes coming to SNL the next season, and... Honestly, I'm kind of surprised by, you know, I, I think Melissa Villaseñor was really just kind of finding, you know, had really just really recently exploded on that show. She'd become one of my one of my favorites to watch.
3: I liked her and and she's incredibly talented. I just never thought that the show had uh, any idea of how to use her, unfortunately. And and it's not in any way her fault and I'm sure that she will find outposts which will let her, you know, stretch her stuff more because she is incredibly talented aristotle athari there was it was he just he just ended up being one of the less used new components last year and so not hugely surprised um and alex moffat was was of just a useful player on the show he had recurring characters he was a good actor to use as a straight man so like i don't know that he was essential to the show but I think he served a lot of very, very valuable purposes where they'll simply have to find new <laughs> new people yeah. to do it.
2: He, he was in, in baseball terms, which I know our listeners love. He was like a, a Chris Taylor or a Kike Hernandez, right? The super utility.
3: He was he was a glue guy, if we want to use uh, other sports adjacent terms. Anyway, that's that is a lot of overhaul. But as we talked about at the end of last season, when all of the, the massive announcements came, it, the, the cast was so big and so talented and it, it's not like any of these are going to destroy the show, but there are obviously a lot of very big gaps that the show is going to have to fill in the new season. And I'll be curious to see how they do it. And, and I'll be curious to see who benefits from all of the suddenly vacated screen time. That is, That is a lot of people who were the center of a lot of sketches who are Absent.
2: Yeah. And and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of new additions that usually comes in just before the new season is set to premiere. So I'm sure that'll be in the coming weeks. I'm sure as well.
3: I'm sure right now that interns at NBC are going over Twitter feeds and listening to dozens upon dozens of podcast appearances from young comics looking to see who would be immediately canceled if they were announced as the new cast members on SNL, or I hope that that's what they're I doing. I hope that that's what. We're, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. otherwise the internet will have to do it for Lorne Michaels. And
2: it won't take much time and it'll be an unnecessary black eye to start the season. So yeah, don't do that again, guys. Uh, and, you know, speaking of NBC, there's a lot of changes going on there um, or NBC universal, I should say, uh, Lucas Shaw over at Bloomberg had a good report uh, this week that Comcast is looking to cut as much as one billion from the budget at NBC Universal, specifically at its legacy TV business. And with that in mind, news broke uh, that NBC proper is considering ditching scripted programming and altogether in the 10 p.m. hour and instead turning the slot over to its local affiliates. That would obviously save the network a lot of money and shrink its programming needs by seven hours a week and help cut costs as Linear continues to implode. Obviously, it's still profitable, but in terms of the ratings and the success, it's just, how much more can we say that Linear is a dying beast? But NBC, like ABC and CBS, has programmed at least three hours of primetime dating back to TV's Golden age. So in the larger sense, should NBC trim the 10 PM hour, the primetime footprint would be more in line with broadcast networks like Fox and the CW, which have two program, two hours of programming nightly from obviously from eight to 10, plus three hours on Sundays for Fox with football and everything else. And then, you know, that's, that's just one thing that they're considering. And then. Other, elsewhere at NBC Universal, you got cha- big changes coming to E! as Daily Pop and Nightly Pop. Those shows have been axed as the cable network is looking to return to its roots with a new evening news show in October. So, yeah, I wonder what Joel McHale's doing. I mean, he might be a little more expensive than they're looking for right now. But, yeah, it's n- no surprise here because this is really what... We've seen what we're seeing Warner Brothers Discovery do. Obviously, there's $3 billion in in, uh, in cost savings to do after the merger there. But Disney has been doing this. Every company has been doing this and streamlining. And basically, as we've been saying since the beginning of the pandemic, reorganizing its executive ranks, looking at its budgets and putting that more towards streaming. It's really got to build up Peacock. We talked at the last Peacock earnings. They're pretty flat, very no subscriber growth. Yeah, they're they're in trouble over there and they have to cut costs. They got to figure out a way to to add more resources to Peacock because they're still looking for a big breakout hit that is going to be a must must-watch show to, that will bring in new subscribers. But yeah, they're struggling over there.
3: We've talked about that several times, and I'm sure we will do it again several more.
2: <laughs> yeah. Up next,
3: number 2.
2: To no surprise, HBO has renewed House of the Dragon for a second season. As sources say, that decision was pretty much a foregone conclusion before the show launched as the premium cable network's biggest ratings premiere ever, Dan. So the late August debut of House of the Dragon collected nearly 10 million total viewers and has since grown to more than 25 million when factoring in delayed multi-platform returns. Episode two also ticked up as the show's viewership is up on par with Game of Thrones season six. That's really impressive for a new show, even though it's not really new. It's still in the same franchise. So you kind of know what to expect. So not really surprised by the renewal here. Not really surprised by, by the ratings either. Dan, are you? Oh, uh, I'm
3: su- definitely not surprised by the renewal. No, that, that was going to happen regardless. It's one of those things where the amount of money that was spent on this in the first place was so great that there was no way they were just going to do this as a one season show
2: yeah i mean less than 200 million which is still less than what jj wanted for Demimond.
3: It, it's true but which did not have the the brand the only brand on that one was jj and the jj abrams brand has not always been successful as a thing you could sell a television show on uh
2: yeah aren't we still waiting for the Westworld renewal
3: well, uh, you know, it's sort of a lot of people when it got to the end were like, it could just end right here. Um, I think I've felt that way for a couple seasons now, but that's neither there nor here. No, the the ratings actually, I, I am surprised by the ratings. I'm not surprised by the big initial numbers. I'm surprised by how well it held up in the second week. Uh, I just wouldn't, have, you know, it's just not the way that things work for the most part. You have big hype, you have big anticipation, and then usually... According to the rules of the road, there's a decline. That's simply how it works. Also, in a streaming universe, there's a decline on the number of people who are going to feel the need to watch it immediately. And there was no such decline in the second week. And so that's obviously tremendous news for HBO. And I can't imagine they would have expected that week two was going to tick up. It's it's just not how it works. And there, there had to have been concern initially about whether there was fatigue off of *Brand the Broken having the greatest story of all and the finale of the series and all of all of the disgruntlement and annoyance and the fact that the final season, more people talked about Starbucks cups in the background of episodes than talked about the actual TV show.
2: <laughs> I, never forget.
3: I, never forget, and nor should anyone. But I, like there just had to be someone at HBO who was thinking, OK, this could come out and it could be successful. And then week two could fall 50% and it could be successful and we'd renew it, but we'd be renewing it kind of while holding our noses. And instead, big first week, bigger second week, HBO just gets to take a victory lap on all of this one. And also one of those advantages that HBO has of of being cable-y and having a tradition of giving out ratings is HBO gets to come right out and say, here are our viewership numbers And, you know, check it out. 25 million viewers in the first week, uh, 10 million live, et cetera. And that will be an advantage that they will continue to have when that is not something that Amazon is going to be able to do after this weekend with Lord of the Rings. And it is not something that Disney Plus has been able to do with She-Hulk. So it it is a it is a very good thing for HBO that they are in position to be able to go. We're going to tell you this is a hit, and we're going to tell you in terms that you absolutely understand. We're not going to give you some BS 1.6 billion milliseconds of viewing whatever. No, we're telling you we this. We're up
2: 650% compared to last season. Well, last season was zero, and we have no idea what that means. So 650 million times zero, is, in, in my book anyway, is still zero.
3: Yeah, the, the HBO has an advantage of being a little bit old school in this respect. They get to come out and just give numbers that actually make makes sense, and they get to take a a victory lap. And given where HBO and Discovery have been for the past month of news, I, I have to imagine there is a tremendous amount of relief to be able to sit back and be happy about something rather than having to justify firing X percent of people and canceling shows and pulling shows off of HBO Max and all of the other things, all the, the cost
2: saving moves the, yeah.
3: that the narrative has been previously here. The narrative gets to be we invested a tremendous amount of money in and time and time in perpetuating one of our biggest franchises. And at least for now, it is working. So,
2: right. But one thing that we know that's going to change in season two is there was going to be a new co runner. Uh, the news broke this week. We, we had the exclusive from our colleagues, James Hibbard and Boris Kitt, that House of the Dragon Coast showrunner Miguel Sapochnik, who directed the pilot as well as episodes six and seven of this season, has stepped down. He's being replaced by another Game of Thrones veteran, Alan Taylor. Sapochnik said in a statement that the decision was his and one that he made after pouring the past three years of his life into the series. And he's going to obviously remain at HBO with a development deal there and continue to be credited as an executive producer on House of the Dragon. Dan, any big thoughts here? Were you surprised by this? I was.
3: I I don't know that I was because uh, like on this one, obviously that, that tendency is to see this as a sign for concern or, or whatever. And, and I don't More know
2: creative or something happened behind the scenes. Yeah.
3: And obviously I would assume our colleagues potentially know other dirt behind the scenes and, and we do not know them and they would not be able to come on and tell us that dirt now. So, but maybe in... if there is dirt, who knows exactly. And, and, but I, but honestly, and I'm not normally the kind of person who, who takes things at face value. I can almost just accept this at face value that this is, that this was already a very, very unusual situation that you had the writer showrunner, you had the directing showrunner, and then you always had George R.R. R. Martin kind of looming in the background, um, as this is my world, tread lightly upon it. And you know, it's it's not the way the TV business works to have a directing showrunner. You have directing producers on lots of shows. But this particular job that Miguel Spachnik has had was not a standard television industry showrunning version of the job. And I think that it did a very good job of illustrating kind of the number of different masters a show like this has to serve, where it's one thing to say, we're writing this. Here's what we're saying that we're going to do, but having a director who has kind of a similar power position or level of control allows there to be someone who says, OK, but here's what we can actually do. Here's what, as the man who is behind the camera at various different times, I know can be done. And so um I understand how after multiple years of doing this, it could be exhausting. And if that if you are him, you would want to go do literally anything else and at the same time i think it's smart to have an alan taylor come in in a comparable capacity because he had a comparable capacity on game of thrones like miguel sapachnik he knows what can be done he knows the nuts and bolts he knows the physicality of it and so like is there gossip were there creative differences? I I literally haven't the faintest idea, not even a clue. And down the road, I'm quite certain that our extremely well-sourced colleagues, because if there's a thing to know, James Hibbard knows it, um, or will know it soon. Uh, And maybe someday it'll be a conversation where we'll want to hear all the good and juicy stories. And I'm sure we will in in the current version, though, it makes sense that someone in that position might get burnt out after three years of developing this and that bringing in someone like Alan Taylor in roughly a similar capacity would make sense. So,
2: yeah. yeah. And of course, you know. I'm going to plug it for him since he's not here to do it himself. You can read more about the untold stories of Game of Thrones in Fire Cannot Kill a Dragon, which is the book that our colleague James Hibbard wrote all about Game of Thrones and the franchise. So, yeah, he's definitely well sourced in that stuff. Like Tyrion so.
3: Lannister, he knows things.
2: <laughs> Nicely done, Dan. Up third. Number three. With triple digit temperatures here in L.A., it doesn't feel like falls around the corner, but pumpkin spice lattes in the TV calendar say otherwise as we head into September, which is typically when all the broadcast networks return with their new shows, time to back to school and ads for new cars. So, Dan, let's take a look at some of the big premieres coming in the month ahead. Obviously, the biggest premiere of the month and actually probably the year bows September 2nd today. As Amazon's years-in-the-making Lord of the Rings series debuts, along with House of the Dragon, both of those were easily the top two most anticipated of the year. On streaming, Hulu has new seasons of The Handmaid's Tale, which you'll hear uh, all about coming up next with Bruce Miller. Then you've got the long-awaited return of Rami, one of our favorites. Peacock takes a bite out of Vampire Academy. Modern Family co-creator Steve Levitan is back with his next show, Reboot, on Hulu. Netflix has the new season of Cobra Kai, which I've already seen most of and it's very fun. And Disney Plus launches its latest Star Wars show, Andor. Elsewhere, you got the final seasons of Atlanta, The Good Fight, and Queen Sugar on FX, Paramount Plus, and Own, respectively. On Premium Cable, you've got Showtime Revisiting American Gigolo. And of course, the Emmys air Monday, September 12th on NBC, with the award show marking the official launch of the new broadcast season, which will feature rookies like Monarch on Fox, NBC's Quantum Leap, So Help Me, Todd at CBS, and the return of last season's breakout hit, ABC's Abbott Elementary. On the syndicated front, two new hosts join the fray, Jennifer Hudson and Sherry Shepard. A whole lot going on this month, Dan. What are you most excited about?
3: It's an interesting month. It it really is. And it doesn't feel in any way like a traditional September. Uh, As you say, the traditional September is the Emmys come and then the broadcast season starts. And it's an antiquated way of setting a schedule, but it is the way that we are accustomed to setting a schedule. And I think that you will, if you are a fan of broadcast television and some people are still watching a lot of broadcast television. God bless. Uh, you'll see a lot of your favorites coming back. But it, it is unquestionably notable that looking at the number of new shows that are premiering this month, it's like a half dozen of the, on the broadcast side. It, it, compared to some falls where you would have 20 new shows premiering within two weeks of each other.
2: And that's not a new phenomenon. That's been happening for the past couple of years, obviously partially because of COVID. But this was a trend that started before the pandemic because a lot of these networks realize you're spending millions and millions of dollars to try and cut through in a two or three week span where everyone is trying to do the same. And you just can't win that way. A lot of people have been, a lot of the networks have instead opted to either, Debut in October. The CW has historically been an October premiere month, but now you're starting to see the big four networks doing the same thing, whether it be October or staggering their premieres into November or just waiting until 2023, which is becoming more and more commonplace.
3: This still feels this still feels different. I mean, it's obviously an extension of of where things. But there's also
2: fewer new shows.
3: Yeah, and that's mostly what that's mostly what I'm seeing is that it used to be that you would. God, you would get Entertainment Weekly's fall preview issue and it would tell you about 40 new TV shows. And that would be such a just on broadcast, just on broadcast. And that would be an exciting thing to get in your, in your mailbox. And, and it would be the most fun. And then there wasn't, there weren't 40 new shows anymore, but you could still do a 10 best, 10 worst of the new shows. Now it's like the three best, three worst, but what would even be the point of that? It, it feels like a very different landscape now of course thankfully broadcast has become only a portion of the lineup so it's not like people are going to feel as if september is a month without television this is not a month where i'll be able to chill out and relax you've got all of these colossal huge brands that are happening whether it's uh, obviously lord of the rings which i'll talk a bit more about in a bit uh for some generation, Vampire Academy is is a large brand. There is definitely a large brand associated with Cobra Kai. Obviously, there's the American Gigolo brand. Um, you can't see Leslie's raised eyebrows, but they're very, very raised.
2: I don't want to know what the American Gigolo brand
3: is. I mean, the American Gigolo brand is just people have been... I don't know. There there have been thirst traps around John Bernthal for many many years, but no one has ever done a TV series that was entirely based upon, "Hey, it's John Bernthal. He's sexy. Watch him for 10 episodes." And that seems Can I just
2: get the, get a prequel for The Bear?
3: Uh, maybe. I mean, spoiler alert
2: if you haven't seen The Bear.
3: I do. That's a very, very small spoiler alert. Um I think there there will be I mean, it's it's bigger than any of the spoilers for season five in our upcoming Bruce Miller interview, but definitely a uh, small spoiler alert. No, so there there are definitely things to look forward to, though. You mentioned, obviously, the TV show's ending and Atlanta is a a, you know, it's a landmark show. And so that's a that's a major ending for for FX slash Hulu. Uh, the good fight, the good fight fight to me is, was, and has been a better show than The Good Wife, but it never got anywhere near the level of acclaim slash discussion. And obviously that's a factor of Paramount Plus and all of that, but it still is an important show that is coming to an end. And then with Queen Sugar, it's unlikely to get even as much publicity as the end of The Good Fight. But I think when we step back and we look at The legacy of Queen Sugar, and we look at all of the uh, female directors and directors of color who Ava DuVernay has employed over the years on that show.
2: And given them their first shots. Yeah, yeah.
3: again, and in most cases, given them their first shots. the, the, The number of people going forward for years and decades to come who, when you look at their IMDb page, the first listing will be Queen Sugar, that is a titanic achievement that will always be a thing that is worthy of of discussion. So those are all important. And then as you say there there are favorite shows. So I'm looking I'm really looking forward to to Rami uh, being able to watch Netflix's Mo which people should definitely check out which he co-created with Mo Amer who has been a um, co-star on Rami as well. Uh, that that sort of wet appetites a little bit, but I'm definitely looking forward to checking out my screening screeners of that one.
2: Um, I may have already watched them, Dan. I
3: that's oh my goodness, you're ahead of me on Rami. Do you want to tell me to
2: watch Rami? That would be that would be. Oh, Dan, Rami is really good, and you should watch that show. That's a good. That's a good idea. I'll, Why I'll, haven't you watched that yet, Dan? I, I don't know. I don't know. You know, we should have him on the podcast.
3: Got no objections to that ever. <laughs> you can you can go all the way back. He was one of our very 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 first guests. He wasn't technically a showrunner spotlight, but he was an end of the year guest uh back in probably 2019. Does that sound right?
2: You're correct. December 20th, 2019 in episode 51, which was our 2019 year in review episode.
3: Yeah, that was that was back when we'd done maybe a half a dozen showrunner spotlights and we just had him on cuz we wanted to. Uh which was, you know,
2: fun we I mean, had had more than half a dozen at that point I, I
3: guess i i sort of lose track of the different layers of this podcast oh evolution
2: well let's see uh, now i'm trying to look at my google doc let's see how far back did we have uh, a showrunner
3: well when was when was david e kelly
2: no david e kelly wasn't our first one
3: who are you counting as our first one
2: let's see <laughs> i'm looking i'm looking
3: this is a fun new segment. Dan sits waiting patiently while Leslie goes through her Google Doc.
2: We had in episode 31, July 25th, 2019, Robin Feedy was our first showrunner guest. It wasn't billed as a showrunner spotlight. That happened the next episode, episode 32, August 2nd, 2019, with Josh Schwartz.
3: Okay, so when was uh, David E. Kelly in the midst of all of this?
2: Oh, you're, you want to go back? Yeah,
3: when was David E. Kelly?
2: David E. Kelly was episode 38. Huh. Okay. So it, September 2019.
3: In my mind, he was a little bit earlier, but I had forgotten that we'd done that many press tour interviews. Wow. That's yes, because
2: we, we did that interview, like, with, like, in a theater, before you were about to moderate a panel with him, and like we didn't have a table, so we like stacked some boxes and bags and everything else, and kind of made like a makeshift desk. We were, and we all kind of yes. huddled around that. Which with, was with, li- with little children, with David with, e. Kelly.
3: with little children ch- uh, chairs, and with David. Yes, e.
2: Kelly. Um, <laughs> that was hilarious.
3: Anyway, so that was that was a little trip down memory lane. Anyway, September, lots of TV. Some of it is bound to be interesting.
2: Up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment.
1: Number four.
2: Our guest this week is Bruce Miller, the series creator and longtime showrunner on *The Handmaid's Tale*, Hulu's Emmy-winning adaptation of Margaret Atwood's iconic dystopian novel. Before bringing *The Handmaid's Tale* to TV, which launches its fifth season on September 14th, Miller's credits included *The 4400*, *Alphas*, *Eureka*, and *ER*. Thanks so much for joining us, Bruce.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
3: So I feel like with season four, the last season, it it premiered in April of 2021, and that was in the quote unquote kind of relative calm of the post-Trump storm, and that maybe you guys got one season where you were able to promote the show without the thematic weight of the world on your shoulders. Did The Last Media Cycle feel at all different
2: to you? (laughs) And does this one feel different comparatively?
1: This one definitely feel they do feel different from each other. I think, and and a lot of that, honestly, we have the marketing department. You know, at Hulu and MGM are are they do all that work themselves. So so much of the creative interaction the audience has with the show beforehand is all them. So all of that kind of reacting and to, to the, to that is, is in their hearts, not because I'd given it over to them by that point. Um, but for me and my, my kind of being interviewed by the press, you know, uh, every year when the, or every time the show comes out, I wish it was every year. Uh, you know, there's just that one, one month flurry where, where people are asking me questions. And uh, the year before it was definitely more about the show this year, I'm getting much more uh, political questions. And also there's just, I think a lot uh, more attention on kind of the show coming back than, um, I was expecting for season five, but also this is a streaming world and who knows who's watching one through four today. You know, it's just, you know, I looked the other day and the show is number five on, on, uh, you know, on Hulu. We haven't, we haven't put out a season in a, a year. I mean, that's, so I don't know how those rhythms work anymore, but people seem very excited and it, And um, terrified, you know, uh, so I guess that's good for our show.
3: Well, before we get into the terrified part, because, of course, we'll talk about the terrified part. What was the conversation like when it was more focused on, I guess, really the show as a show as opposed to the show as magnifying glass microscope, however you want to put it, for everything that's happening in the world?
1: Uh, strangely, um, uh, uh, the one thing I'll point out is I often get questions about, and last season was very much this: like you're finally going beyond the book, and, you know, and and what are you going to do, and and you know, what's what's your feeling about that, and you're stepping into your own territory, and and uh, Margaret and I, Margaret and I have been in very close touch since the beginning, and. The fact is, I went past the book in the first in the pilot because I took things from the end of the book, and i 'm still using things from the book now, so i 'm not past the book at all i 'm still using so in in some ways it's it 's always a funny question because it 's like, oh no, all the things that happened in the book happened so long ago, but also i you know the everything that 's happening in the show is still to me entirely based on things that are extrapolated from the book, so it doesn 't feel like I am ever kind of at the point of a new spear, I always feel, I, I mean, happily under Margaret's kind of fictive umbrella. You know, it's nice to, to to have someone who's such a good storyteller kind of laying the groundwork for your show.
3: So where and when were you guys in the process on this season when the leaked Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade was announced, broke in the news? Uh,
1: I, I believe we were almost done filming, I'm not quite sure whether we were shooting or not. Um, and interestingly, I, I mean, I, I spoke to, they are so used to going to work in the middle of political chaos. I mean, we we were shooting the the night of the uh, the, the Clinton-Trump election, you know, and all the weeks after that, you know, every single January 6th, we were writing that day. Anyway, everything. Um, and it just, it seemed like Unbelievably, they 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 took it in stride and went to work, and they were in the place where they felt most supported. I mean, in the last two years, they spent more time with each other than anybody else, um, and I think that was that was good. But I think you know, it always makes us all of us, I think, unhappy when anything on the show that comes from our worst imagination appears in some form in real life. And so I think that there's, there's no, absolutely no glee in the, in in when something appears, that's bad. Um, When something appears, you know, when, when things start to appear that might be good things from the book, you know, about rebellion or, or kind of speaking out against things, that's always nice, but it is uh, it's terrible to have a job where you sit around and imagine the worst things that could happen in your country. And then they do. That's not fun.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, when something like that does happen after having now worked on on the show for a number of seasons, how long do you have to process the news on a human level before you ponder what it means for the story that you're telling?
1: You know, we never really ponder what it means for the story that we're telling. Um, I think a lot of it is that we're all the, the things that are happening in the news are kind of steeped in the issues of the day. And I think we're more in the issues of the day than the news, the issues of the of this era than the news of the day. And so because I think that if we tried to kind of bring the news into the writers room, it would never work. Everybody is just a news person and everybody's all up to date. And that's all the conversation. And then we go work on the show and the things are so different that I think it really allows the the world to reflect on the show and the show to kind of be its own thing to reflect on the world. You don't see you don't see the the our world going in there, but you can feel it coming out, feel that point of view coming out.
3: But sort of on the other side of the equation, not necessarily writing to what's happening in the world, but what is the process of kind of looking back at what you've already done and kind of processing if it's going to suddenly have a different meaning or a different value than maybe it did six months earlier?
1: It is a fantastic question. I mean, we we live in a time, kind of a, an unbelievable time of organic storytelling where there's feedback and you know uh, on your on your stories right away and where people can watch all the old seasons and compare everything to everything so it's a problem Uh, uh, you know and i I listen to a lot of podcasts about the show i don't listen during the season but during the off season um i listen to podcasts and people reacting and reviewing and all that stuff and i i I think it's an organic thing and that's going to be something we're all going to deal with and i think the Funny thing is, is it's something people always have dealt with, but almost always it was after they died or after they finished working on the project. Our our thing is so fast that you know the world is just seemingly being reflected in our show so fast because we're at a time where it's a political time and we're a political show. Um, it's it's very much so quick that there is no way to react. So I think what. What we try to do is inoculate ourselves from it um, the same way I try to inoculate myself from from my own criticism of the show, which is I just try to think about what would June do and what would really happen and not go much beyond that. I mean, oftentimes that's what makes the show so hard to predict is it's just what would happen, not what would happen on TV, but would probably happen.
2: Yeah. You know, and before Handmaid's Tale, you know, you you worked on a lot of shows that really didn't have the same pressure attached to them. You know, when you talk to colleagues and your peers who are on other shows, how do you explain this unique kind of responsibility that that's been thrust upon you and upon the show?
1: First of all, I I, I do feel the responsibility, and I take it really seriously. And the way that I take it seriously is to kind of keep doing the show the way i've been doing the show you know thoughtfully and slowly and with a very good group of people and all that kind of stuff and listening so i think by 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 just kind of going slowly plotting through the thing that i do i think that allows me to kind of shut out the the world outside a little bit um and i think you know the first season taught me that lesson of kind of the the outside noise has to go away uh, because I had never experienced anything like that kind of press. And because I had never experienced anything like it, the amount of time it took up away from a first time, you know, not first time, first time creator, you know, making my pilot, making my second season, that was unimaginably time consuming and all that stuff. And, and strange because up until then, no one had asked me to reflect on the work that I had done. I had done the work and, you know, people watched it and they enjoyed it. And there was no person coming back and telling me someone said this and someone said that. What do you think of that? So I think that it's um, uh, when I talk to my peers about being on shows that aren't like that, the, the, the existence is very much the same. I think um, people have very, very at this point, very vocal and uh, devoted and thoughtful fan bases. Uh, I feel really lucky that, that I have, I mean, we have a a very big fan base and they are very respectful. I, I mean, I cannot tell you how love, and especially to, to me, a boy in a woman's job. I mean, I I have no fucking right to be doing what I'm doing. So I, I mean, they're very kind and and generous and and give me space for that. Um, But, but, I, I and I think some people are on shows. When I was on ER, you remember when I was on ER a long time ago. The we get nothing mail. We would get nothing but hate mail. Everybody hated the show, and a million people watched it. Zillions watched it. When I was on Eureka, nobody watched, but our fans, the ones we had, lo- loved everything we did. That we could do no wrong. So on ER, they they every story point we we were idiots, idiots. Uh, but it was so. It's nice to be on a show here that. They don't love the show. They don't hate the show. They don't love the character. But they are very respectful of the, of, of the process to make it. And, and I couldn't ask for, for more than that in, in the fan base. So I think in some ways, uh, it's more about your kind of personal relationship with, with your fan base, if you have one, or the loudest noise in the room that's being made in reaction to your show that you react to. Mine is louder, but everybody has a loud room. You know, and yeah. that's what they're kind of hearing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. And I actually wanted to go back to something that you said, you know, obviously being a man in, in this woman's world and, and you know, most people, I think, I don't know if, if many remember your connection with this, but I remember talking to you ahead of season one, you know, that this was the book is a special property for you. I mean, I remember reporting, I think I way back in the day exclusively broke that that Hulu was going to be doing this with you. But look, Eileen Chaikin had the rights. It was with Showtime for a little bit. And one of the things that I remember from the reporting, and correct me if any of this is, you know, if I'm missing any of this stuff, but um, you did a thesis on this book, and you had originally told your agents, like, if Handmaid's Tale ever comes up, this is your dream project. Is that right?
1: Uh, I, I hadn't written a thesis, but I had read it in college. Um, I, I always say that because amanda Bruegel, who plays um who plays Rita on the show, wrote her thesis on Handmaid's Tale um before she got on the show and then she got it. that's what she told me on the first day of shooting. so uh, i but but I read it in a new fiction class in college, so that tells you how old I am. It was brand new when I was in college. and um, I mean, I still have the co- the book I have, which I didn't really realize. the book I bought for the class is the first edition of the book, The American Edition because. It had just come out. I don't know who the professor was. I don't remember anything about the class. Uh, but um, I'm sure it cost like sixty thousand dollars, and I remember nothing of it. Um, <laughs> as terrible, but it it was not just one of the first books I read. It was one of the first books that I read that I really felt like the writing I could I could understand a lot more because of the way it was written. Um, I'm very dyslexic, and I have. I always have had trouble reading It always had trouble kind of sucking the story out of something. And I always felt like Margaret Atwood was like, oh my God, this story particularly, it, it was just laid on me in a way that I could really understand. So in a lot of ways, as I learned to be a writer, I reread this book a lot. I tend to reread books. Um, I think it's a, but I've, I had reread it, you know, a hundred times. i read it every once in a while and, and I at one point said, wow, this would make a great movie. And then they made a movie and it wasn't so great. So and then I thought, you know, it would make a great um, series, and then they were gonna make the series. So I was just sitting around as a fan. But whenever with my first agent, say, I, I would say, if it ever comes around, just remember, you know, they always ask at the beginning, what are your dream projects? And I always say, The Handmaid's Tale, I think, is a great series. And and so, you know, if it ever happens to come around, I know Eileen Jacken's working on it. And so it was just luck that it came because, you know, you know, everybody talks about how do you choose? You don't choose projects. The timing is what chooses projects. You know, I happened to come off a another show that I was working. I happened to come off a pilot I think I was working on it, and, and become available. And when my agent asked what's out there, someone said The Handmaid's Tale. And he said, you know, aha. But they weren't, you know, interviewing or talking to any men, of course. Yeah, because they was,
2: wanted to hire a woman to run it.
1: I was a hundred percent on their side, except I wanted the job. I didn't know what to do. You know, it's like you're, you're torn. You're like, yes, <laughs> don't even talk to me. So, uh, but we waited and, and, and fortunately I had worked before with enough people there that they, they felt like if I said, you know, uh, I need to bolster that part of my, that, that weakness in my storytelling point of view with some very, very good writers that I was, Serious about that—that that I was, you know, gonna bring in people who not only uh, have a strong female voice on the page, but also uh, are, are different from each other. So you don't have one. So you don't have. One. So I had a like. I, I mean, I, they were—they knew that. Honestly, I was not gonna sit there and go, "I know better." Um, you know, once I once I finished listening to Margaret Atwood, I had uh, other women to listen to. So
3: as the show has gone along how has that process of making sure that the other voices are in the room and the other voices are heard how has that process shifted for you
1: um it's been spectacular i mean i think that the hardest part at the beginning was to get people to be much more um comfortable saying you don't understand that because you're a guy <laughs> let me explain to you how it is and i i don't mind that we don't mind that we're you know it, it, that's what the room is for but the, so I think it's gotten a lot better because I think the, the, the people there, a, a culture has developed where people are very comfortable talking about themselves, but more importantly, where you're comfortable being challenged after you do. Everybody knows there's a room you can go in and you can let your big secret out and everybody will clap. And will. Unfortunately, that's not this room. You have to be able to let your big, terrible secret out about you know, some terrible trauma that you've had. And then someone says, did you eat afterwards? You know, and you can't feel like they're, they're. it's not purely an interest. They want to know because they, and so you have to allow it to be interrogated. Did you feel this way? And so that's the respect between people. I mean, the hard part isn't going, you know, getting yelled at for you don't know anything. I, I have three sisters. I've been yelled at my entire life for not knowing anything. But the hard part is being comfortable asking someone a question about something so traumatic and them being comfortable answering you. Uh, that kind of conversation has gotten a lot easier because that culture has kind of been inculcated. Uh, The the other thing is just, I I mean, I've gotten very lucky with the women writers I've hired. They've all been extraordinary and uh, all outspoken about different things. They all had different interests. And I I just wanted to go back to when you're in the room, it's so funny when someone says, You don't understand. That's not how a woman sees things. And they tell you the best thing is that every other woman disagrees with that woman all the time, 100 percent of the time. And that's what you get is you get a a variety of opinions as opposed to one. That's the hard thing. You don't want to have representation in the room if it isn't, you know, forceful enough to get into the, the story. And here, you know, you get that's the debate that you want to see is six women talking about how exactly does it feel when your period starts? What's the first thing you feel? Do you feel your stomach? Do you feel, you know, blah, blah, blah. and I, you know, my, my daughter's 17. So according to her, everything, you feel everything all at once. But it was, that conversation was super interesting and we ended up using it in the show and it, you know, really to understand that it's one of those things that makes the show uh, feel gritty and real is that the normal things about being a woman, luckily I have Elizabeth Moss, who's very communicative and comfortable and vocal saying, no, 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 and, and comfortable in that way. Like, like this is a boy problem. You're, you're having a boy problem. I you need to, ex, I need to explain it to you. So she's very comfortable doing that, and I think that helps too. And that was always from the beginning. She's yeah. um,
2: especially uh, she, as an exec producer on the show.
1: Yes, and I think a real exec producer on the show. Yeah, you know, we not, we, not we talked you. about that before. Yeah, we talked about that, Lizzie and I, before the show started. You know, because I was like, I'm happy to have you come along, but boy, is it hard work. And she was like, nope. And so it, it's worked out splendidly. But you just got to have that conversation first, you know.
3: I Definitely want to talk more about Lizzie and her expanded contributions. But I want to sort of continue along what you're saying. Uh, I assume you have to discover each season in the writer's room new blind spots that you have, right? So give me some of your more recent blind spots that you've had exposed and lessons you've learned, as it were.
1: Wow. Well, it's 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 interesting because I ha- I have so many, and I'm always stunned at how many I have. I mean, it, it's mostly with kind of the how insulting normal language is, <laughs> and how insulting kind of the normal things that people do are. Which, I, I you know, I I really, uh, I, you know, I don't mind getting those kind of, you know, I, I don't mind getting those kind of. Criticism. But, it, but the new blind spots you know, for, for that, that are kind of recent and the lessons that, that I've learned recently, um, a lot of it has been, as I said, about coded language and insulting language and language that is um, – and, and, and a lot of the way I learned the lesson or expressed the lesson is to use that coded language from the people from Gilead. For example, I think uh, I had one of the, my, my, my wife was just driven crazy because someone she knows always says fattening, food is fattening. It's such an old fashioned, horrible body image way to do it. And so immediately I had the ants saying it to the, the women in Jezebel's, like, don't eat that, you're getting all fat, fattening, it's all fattening. And so you can kind of use it in a good way, but you got to start noticing it. And once you notice it, like when you're writing it, you really notice it coming out of your mouth and you start to kind of keep those phrases honestly for creative purposes. Like, like I I wrote down the other day, I'm, you know, I'm working on the testaments and I wrote down the word wedlock because that's a great frigging word. If you're working on a story about, you know, kids who are terrified of getting married in Gilead, that's, that's a fantastic word. It has so much more meaning. So all the kind of meaning in our life about, you know, what does it mean that you're locking yourself to another person and he, you know, owns you in this. Anyway, it's, it was just fascinating that that much stuff is in my normal language. So I think the lesson is to be more careful and be comfortable being corrected. Not, you're never going to get it all right. I mean, uh, so, you know, just be comfortable kind of uh, moving along in the process with a new thing. You know, you're just going to have to go, okay, well, because I can't stop being in the room. So I have to adapt the the language that that is of the day. You can't just kind of barrel through with your own uh, stuff. So I think that um, the, the big lesson I've learned is learn your lesson.
2: Yeah. And, you know, and, and in, in thinking about next season, obviously, one of the big, uh, big pieces of news that ha- that recently broke is, you know, the loss of Alexis Bledel, who obviously won an Emmy, was nominated four times for her role as Emily. You know, uh, what was that conversation that led to her departure? And was this her decision or a creative one? And is this a permanent departure or is the door remaining open for her?
1: Um, uh it was not a creative thing at all and it was all personal on her side i mean she had she had um she made the decision herself with her with her people and everything and just let me know and and it was it was um you know she was having you know she was having discussions with them for a long time so i think it was a very hard decision for her but it certainly wasn't creative i mean that was the hardest part for for both of us is that we had already planned a season of of things. So, um, but uh, you know, it was it. I I her character is wonderful, and and um, uh, you know, I was very careful not to you know kill that character off off screen. So you know, and for a reason, which I you know would always I, I she she is she's not just a great actress and a good egg, but she also is uh, that character is such so precise and thoughtful and interesting, and she really does seem like you know, a molecular biologist from Montana who lives. She's so, I mean, she's not, she's, you know, Rory Gilmore, but she seems unbelievable. She inhabits that character like nobody I've ever seen before. So anyway, it it was a difficult, it was a very brief conversation because it was not my decision. But
2: but in terms of how you address it, obviously you've said that you're not going to kill her off, but did you have enough warning in advance to kind of figure out, or did you have to wind up going back and rewriting?
1: I didn't have to go back and rewrite, but I had to refigure. But But that's, in any case, you, that's what you do. I mean, every season we've had someone who's, thank lovely, pregnant, or, you know, away, or doing something. So you have to kind of, you know, we have, one of the reasons I think the show has remained strong is that we've kept a strong cast together. And a lot of that is giving them as much flexibility as possible and giving them that flexibility means sometimes you lose someone to a movie a little early in the season. Sometimes someone drops out in the middle because they have to go do AVR and, you know, Tahiti or whatever. And so you have to give them the flexibility to have a career. And I think that, that, uh, so we're very used to kind of bending on the fly. And it's one of the wonderful things about having an ensemble cast that's so strong is that, uh, when you when you say oh I've lost this character from this scene or this story there the options of other characters are so rich because you can throw any of those actors in and they'd be incredibly interesting so it's it's never a it's it's never it's difficult and I don't like thinking on the fly and you know it, it's always difficult because when I have I'm certainly thinking about storylines for everybody all the time and I never expect anybody to to go away. Um so uh because I work so hard to keep everybody. So uh we we had to do a little rejiggering, not very much. Um it uh the the impact that it always has is sometimes one character's story is with another character so that other character also loses quite a bit of story for the season and that's difficult to figure out on the fly. But, uh, but it, you know, it was handled, you know, beautifully and as early as they could have, I think.
3: And I don't think anyone would accuse you guys of letting your characters off easily narratively, but how often have you guys had characters who were on the verge of being written off permanently who you just couldn't bear to stop writing for? Like, are there certain characters who have cheated death on the page Many many times already.
1: Uh, Almost everybody, first of all, except for June. Um, And as I say, it's called the Handmaid's Tale. June didn't survive; it'd be called something else. She does survive. That's the story. She's telling her story. So you know that that. So we never feel like that with her. But you know, um, uh, uh, there are every single character was has done something where they could have easily. Ended up dead, and we honestly don't save anybody who's on that route. Even if, even though we adore them, we had you know two Marthas who got pushed off the roof last season, who were two of our favorite characters and our favorite actors. Um, and it's just as hard for us to watch too, because they're so good in those moments. But I think you you with this, you have to as much as possible follow the story. But you know, we really do our research about totalitarian states and how they punish people and because a lot of times they're punishing people to show other people this is what's going to happen. So they don't want you dead and gone. They want you to walk around with one eye. So there's all sorts of th- – so we try to do enough research so that it really feels like the the what happens to the characters is at least a version of what would ha- happen to the characters, but not the version of, yes, they go off to a prison camp 10,000 miles away and you never see them again. Yes, that would probably – Happen in a lot of cases. You got to keep them together for story reasons. Um, but just you know, uh, Maddie Brewer, who plays Janine, is it, not that she's on the chopping block. None of them are on the chopping. But she's such a delightful character and has grown so much, and and has grown into such a a, a soulful kind of central moral character. Uh, you know, it's those things that you kind of. It isn't that you think you're going to kill people off, but you don't know how much you're going to use. People And I, I am always pleasantly and happily stunned um, by not just how someone who has one line can be good with two, but someone who has three lines can be good with a, you know, an Emmy nomination. I mean, this is amazing. These people have done such, such good work.
3: I, I want to change gears to the end of last season, which saw June at her most vengeful and the act of violence that she commits is, is so vicious that it feels almost like it's a direct confrontation to the audience sympathy as much as anything else. As you traced the arc of last season to Waterford's murder, what was the balance of simultaneously trying to push June as far as you could push her as a character while also attempting to push viewers as far as you could push them as a storyteller?
1: It is it's often that we're in that situation of of wanting June to do things that we're not sure the audience can see or wanting June to do things that we're not sure that the audience will forgive her for. Because June is following the trajectory of someone who has had this incredible trauma, this sexual battery and, and terrible life trauma had her child taken away, went through this, you know, bombed out place to get free. She is so traumatized that a lot of the things she she has been through. And a lot of things she would do would seem unforgivable to us. And a lot of them are out of context, unforgivable, but we've, we've couched them things. Um, The end of last season that I, I, I personally am kind of grossed out by, you know, more gore on. uh, So I try to show just what you need to see to get it, to feel it. And in this case, you know, we are But television is is not doing a very good job of showing people what horrible things really are like. We're sanitizing them all the time. So I thought it was important to show what I mean, the last time when they tore apart a guy, we showed as much as we could, you know, at the beginning of the season. And so I I think the violent, vengeful part we didn't put in there. It's there. We just showed it. Um, and we got closer because we're with June, because we're down there with June. So the point of view of The handmaid sale being The Handmaid helps us kind of decide how much, how much violence to show. I, I kind of put myself in the position of the audience because I, I'm kind of you know, skittish and also I get scared. I can barely watch the show when it's finally done. And it's worse when it's like, you know, you're also proud of your actors. So, you know, in addition to watching and sobbing because something's happening to, to, you know, Serena Joy, I'm like, Yvonne really did such a good job, you know? So you have this other kind of side. Um, but, you know, oftentimes our research lend, leads us to, to the, to the conclusion that this is something we can't show on television. Um, uh, and, and I, you know, the example I would use is when June is interrogated in season three, the beginning of season three, she has a, a a very rough time and it was, we couldn't show anything that they actually would have done to her. I mean, this was very mild and because, you know, when you read that, that they would get, she would be raped with a trained dog. What do you do? Do you show that on the television? Because that's what would really happen. Do you show that? I mean, no. so no, of course not. It's <laughs> not. Horrifying. It's horrifying that it exists. You know, it's like, uh, so all of that stuff, it's one of those things like, like where you're, you're trying to be entertaining and you're not trying to make a documentary. And I'm certainly not trying to tell people what's going on in the world, but you also want to, in order to make it have any impact, you want it to feel real. And the problem is real feels off real feels like I'm a fucking me. Bruce Miller is a monster coming up with just horrors. And it's unfortunately not true, but that's the, you know, that's our own fault as television people.
3: And and when you have a a lead actress who does pained intensity as well as Elizabeth does, and, and I, and I feel as if an argument could be made that nobody has ever done it better on TV than she does. How do you avoid abusing that gift how do you how do you avoid being like okay we know
1: elizabeth can
3: tear herself to shreds at any time let's do it again
1: um wow um elizabeth moss is you know she's astonishing at that at that uh um you say she's astonishing at looking pained my sense is she's just uh, she can create a character and then connect that character to her face with nothing in between. So everything that character feels you see, and, and she can't, can't or won't or doesn't get in the way. It's absolutely a main cable connected from the heart of that character to her face. So I think here, she's so good at playing the character. The character has so many fucking troubles. The character has, a, so I think here her pain, her, her, skill at that is not skill at that. It's the same skill she uses on on every other project she has to be absolutely real. This woman's reality is so painful that it shows on Lizzie's uh, face. Um, the question of how you don't abuse it is a couple of things. Margaret Atwood had a, had a rule in the book that she didn't want to put anything in that didn't happen to real women in the real world, um, you know, in the past or present. And we kind of try to keep as much with the present. So we never do anything to these women that isn't being done to real women in real places in the world and that keeps you from just kind of inventing perversities for june to go through you know just to you know because it is tempting when you kind of have because you know there's a lot of i'm never gonna be working with someone i mean she's astonishing it's it's you know it's the it's like she's amazing. I mean, I can't, you know, it's like the Yankees bullpen, like, you know, and, and so I can write things for her that I wouldn't be able to write for someone else. So I am taking advantage and I do it all the time. And that's my whole job is to push, push, push every chance I get to, to see if she could, she is doing something interesting. We're on a show where, where, you know, we poor Maddie Brewer, if you think about that performance, we took out one of her eyes at the beginning. And so that's what, 25% 25% of her acting real estate on her face. And also she had to wear the same costume as everybody else. So she couldn't say through her clothes or her body or anything who she was. It was this. And then we took away this. That's how good she is. We also with uh, with Alexis, we took away this really left her eyes. She couldn't even talk. You couldn't even see the bottom of her face. So I think there's an aspect of the show that really does lend itself. If you have actors who like that kind of challenge, and if you have actors, as you say, who really can portray this kind of, they can show so much that you know the character doesn't want to show. And they can do it in a way that you believe. They, They have such an interesting, you know, it's like, you know, the way, you know, Lizzie does it so that you totally believe she looks terrified and you totally believe no one else in the room can tell that she looks terrified. That's a, I don't, that's a trick. That is a trick. So anyway, they are very good. We do exploit them. I exploit my, or I try to challenge my DPs. I try to challenge my camera operators. They all challenge themselves much more than I could ever do. I mean, the, and it comes from the top from Elizabeth, moss on the set um she has a extraordinary work ethic that is not um uh manufactured she's now been working with this crew for six or seven years every single day all the way through covid through snowstorms and heat waves and everything and it's not she's not a false leader she leads by example and 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 that work ethic extends Absolutely through the whole crew and everybody's working towards the same thing, which is making a good show, not like like making a cooler TV show, make a more interesting television show for, you, for people to watch. That's it. That's the whole goal. So if someone says, you know, the paint color on this wall would be so much cooler if it was a little redder, they bring that up. You know, they say, you know, they might have more red dye in Gilead because it isn't as toxic. So maybe they, you know. And if it's story and it works, you do it. And then you get all those layers back to infinity. But when they made the pictures for the house, they took them, they're all photographs from the museum of fine art in Boston. And they made them all the right size. So of the real picture, so that it looked like they had taken all these pictures from the museum of fine arts in Boston. And they were all the real picture. I mean, it was like, wow, that's like, you know, so nine layers deep is really. And I think that, you know, Lizzie promotes that, that work ethic uh, from the top and that, is the thing that has mined the most for the show. Is that worth ethic?
3: You mentioned that she started directing last season, and and that's not really all that uncommon for a show at this point in the run to have an actor direct an episode, because sure, why not? Well, she directed three episodes last season. She at least directs the first two this year. I'm sure she probably directs more. There's no evidence whatsoever that there's any less of June or less of her on screen how is she doing it? And what are the conversations you've had to have about how much she's capable of doing?
1: Uh, a lot. And, and uh, you know, and it's interesting because I know we're sitting here talking about it. But, you know, I, I feel it, it is that's back to that same thing about coded language. It's that same coded language thing, which is when I say to Lizzie, hey, you should rest. or when he, She's a grown ass woman. It's not my fucking job to tell her to rest. She knows her her her, you know how tired she is and everything. And I'm not her mother, you know. It, it, you know I, I shouldn't tell her. I, you know she is my absolutely. I I I think she's phenomenal, and she is one of the kindest, most wonderful people. And I love having her in my life. But she's my colleague, and 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 not my child. And and as much as I worry about her, which I do, do, you know, uh, it's not my place to say that. That's as condescending as anything else. Especially because she's, you know, physically small. She, I mean, she, she looks very young, all that stuff, you know, you know, buying into all of that stuff is not okay. Um, and so I think that uh, I, I I have to be very careful not to think, Oh, does, does my little, does my little sweet flower need to rest? I've got to say to her amongst all the other things you need to do, do a good job for me. I need you to rest enough. And I, you know, And I said that once when we first talked about the show, I said, my goal is not to to kill you. That's the show is the show. It's not to kill the handmaid. She says, great. That's the last time we talked about how hard she works because I don't think it's my place. Um, But I think that very much she and I talk about survival and overdoing things and, and losing your creative spark. I think uh, there is so much overlap between the roles that that Lizzie has that I, I I think it's a, you know, it's an exponential amount, larger amount of work that I would not want to do all of those things at the same time, because they are not jobs that you do in your spare time. Um, and uh, but I think that the, the the fact is that when she can be 100 percent on the show, it's easier. So when we did her first episode, I wrote her first episode. I told her I would. Um, I wrote it. And for a while, we were like, well, let's do an episode where, you know, she isn't in it so much, because that's reason and (laughs) logic. Um, You know, you do that. But then she and I talked, and it's like, I'm going to be on the set anyway. Why would you, you know? And she goes, honestly, the person I kind of am most comfortable out of everybody directing is me. So... uh, what we did instead was, I just basically wrote the thing. It was her in prison. I mean, she was the entire show. She was in the entire episode, which is kind of counterintuitive. But when when you realize, well, what else are you going to do with her in this show? Um, it's probably better to have her directing herself than than exhausting herself trying to figure out someone else's language. Um, but she does. I think. I think the she does all of her work from the point of view of this actress that she is this amazingly talented actress and so when she directs i think she directs from character directs from the, the relationships between the characters and, and kind of what the characters are feeling you know above and beyond what's happening and uh, she's such a she's so good at making the camera an actor but she doesn't try to make the camera you know she doesn't Try to make the camera a gaffer. She makes it because she's an actor. She speaks that language, and she speaks that language to the crew. She speaks that language to the cast, and and everybody understands because she's able to speak to those people. Because honestly, she grew up with those people. Not not not. I'm not metaphorically. She started in this business when she was five, so she's very comfortable being an actor on set and talking to all these people, and that has really helped. But in terms of her amount of work. Um, I, I wouldn't be able to do, she, she, she can do more work than I can. Um, and, uh, it's not a competition. I think one of the biggest things, you know, I've had to learn, you know, is that there's a limit to how hard I can work. I mean, this show means, means a lot to me and, and, and Lizzie herself means a lot to me and I want to make sure that it's great for her and that we do great work together. But it's, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, a limit. And before this job, I never really understood when like actresses in the twenties went to the hospital for exhaustion, you know, like, Oh, I was like, Oh, and then I totally understood like after like two weeks of show running, I was like, Oh, that's why they go. That would be lovely just to go. So I, I, I think that, uh, I, I don't compare myself with her. I, and I also, uh, I worry about her quietly. And she controls her own workflow, and I am much happier with it uh, that way. And I think she is.
2: And now that you've obviously seen her direct and everything else, is that maybe have you had any any thought about doing it yourself and stepping behind the camera as well?
1: Um, I, I that's very nice to ask. Seeing Lizzie do it is is. Um, Lizzie is very gifted as a director in addition to being a very gifted actress in different ways. She is a very, very, very good director apart from any of the acting she does or the producing on this show. She is a very good, gifted television director. She has learned a fuckload in her career and she uses it all. She's very good at telling stories. She can get the camera to do what she wants. So she is a very good director. Um, One of the best first-time directors I've ever seen regardless of of uh, where she came from. Part of that is she knows the show, but that's not all of it. You know, she's gifted. And so I think that if I was gifted, I would be pushing myself to do it, but I don't think I'm gifted like that. I think she's gifted. Um, and I'm, and when she asked to direct, I was already like, I had been eating 18 months for her to open her mouth, you know, <laughs> but, but I was not going to ask. Um, I, it, it's very nice of you to say, I really think, I, I, I think that, um, I, I only try to do the jobs that I feel like I could do better or as well as somebody else. And I don't think I could do that better than the people I hire to do it. I mean, we, we've had an astonishing from Reed Murano on, you know, you know, all the way through to, to Lizzie and Bradley. It's, I, I, I w- I've been in awe of all of them and um, I get, I certainly get to put my, big fat footprint on the show creatively in millions of ways. I, I don't need to, you know, move the actors around. I think they get, they, they see me plenty. <laughs>
2: you know, and, and, you know, you mentioned earlier about how the cast turnover and, and not so much the turnover, but being flexible, you know, especially in this peak TV landscape, you know, Lizzie's doing, you know, a number of other shows for other platforms too, but.
1: Don't tell you know, me, I don't want to know who she's cheating <laughs> on me
2: with other, <laughs> other platforms. Oh my God. But like when you think about how you know this the narrative has has changed and how you've had to to maybe change different storylines to accommodate your your talented cast, how does that how has that impacted where you hope the handmaid's tale ultimately ends? like are we getting near the finish line? has is the ending that you foresaw for, of the for the series originally kind of still what you're marching toward and how much more is left to go?
1: The, uh, I'm not allowed to tell you the the ending that I'm that I'm marching towards. I, I is absolutely the same ending I've always had. Most of most, it's funny because we're not even through time wise as far as I thought we would go in the whole show because because the things are more interesting and take more time. You know that then you know Chicago was fascinating. I can so so it. What happens is you end up moving through stuff more slowly because it's a more complicated and certainly the emotional effects on a normal person are harder to fathom because you know the things are so messy and awful to so moving quickly through the trauma is not something that happens to people with trauma and it would be disingenuous to do so i think we we've been moving more slowly but i have um I, i had an unbelievably long time to think about this book i had i had 20 years or 25 years to noodle this book. And I did, I noodled it. And more the thing you noodle more than anything. I don't know if you guys read the book before the show is when it ends, all you want to do is like, what the hell happens next? So I have been thinking about your question, Leslie, (laughs) since I was like, Twenty is like oh my god! What happens next in this book? And so it was so funny when 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 I did the show, people said, "Are you going to go beyond the book?" I'm like, "Of course! That's the only reason." Oh my god! Everybody who reads the book, that's the only thing you want to do is "Ah, what? happens next? So I think that I'm I get a little cheating from that. That I've had a lot of things, but also the the at the having a break between seasons like we have that it isn't so many episodes and I have a genuine break means that I can watch the previous season all together. And, and really, so I think more than any other show, the actors and their performances have, have guided us to where they're going to end up. That's a lot of the times, honestly, when I think of things that are going to happen, the things that are going to happen could happen in 70 different ways that, that would require the characters to come at it in 70 different ways so that I have options. I, you know, I I'm a TV writer, honestly, you know, and a TV writer thinks about story, I think differently than a, than a feature writer, because a, you know, you, you're, you're, you're writing while someone else is breaking a story. You're not they're in a room that you're not seeing. So you kind of know what's going on. And, and also for our entire careers, you get to the end of a season and you wouldn't know. So you had to leave it in a way that was, endable but but pick upable and you know final and scary but not and so you know you had to do all that stuff now i you know who knows if you have to you know kind of you know end it that way Um, but you're also
2: in a in a unique position where you're already developing the testaments right that that news broke out i don't know this last three years feels like one giant year but a few years ago or wherever my timeline is but you know how is knowing that, that that you are sticking with this franchise and expanding it to another show affecting how you're thinking about the how you end the, this one
1: uh i i i am developing uh the testaments and and it's uh it's a great security blanket personally to know that that you're going to be able to go on in this universe i i am the idea that that there 's a universe surrounding handmaids tale would seem comical at the beginning, but I am equally fascinated at all the characters that we 've had a kind of let go to the world that I, so i I just am personally very interested in in the dynamics of different women at different levels of society and who are treated very very differently and, and why and all that kind of stuff. I just think it's it 's a fascinating world, and also it 's so both beautiful and weird you know it 's like awful and beautiful you know it 's all those kind of things. It is influencing though. I, not not more in kind of I'm filing things away from the show that I want to make sure I come back to rather than laying things in the show, uh, Handmaid's Tale. Um, I'm a little bit further along the process because Margaret and I talked about the book a long, long time ago, and she's been very nice about keeping me informed about what happens and who I can kill and who I can't kill, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, and so uh, she's been doing – so I have had a sense of where I've been going since season – too, more than you guys knowing that I'm leading up to. But I think that uh, for me and, and for Elizabeth and for Warren uh, Littlefield and for the, the rest of the cast and crew, knowing that there's going to be more of it and that we might be able to kind of keep the family together, We, we you know, as things this ends, we can move into that. I think people are just personally reassured. In this time of COVID, they are incredibly close this crew and, and, and Lizzie. And so I think that, you know, uh, when you come to the end of any season, everybody gets a little wistful, but we're about to, you know, this is a very big season. We're premiering at TIFF. Our whole cast and crew is going to be there. I think it's going to be weepy.
2: (laughs) Yeah. But in terms of, you know, the first part of that question is, you know, how much more is there here before you really do get into the Testaments? Uh.
1: I, I'm not allowed to tell you yet. Um but uh but I you know uh I think we're we're winding down towards the end, you know, we're getting down towards the end of the story. I but I thought that a couple of times before. Um so um I think uh I have to the person I need to talk to about that before I talk to Leslie is Lizzie. <laughs> so Lizzie and I will have conversations and, and and that's how we try to try to resolve everything is is very peaceably and, and, and like grownups, we don't usually succeed, but um, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's both, you know, having her come on the show where she's been she had so much experience on television shows was so fun because at the beginning, you know, she had seen a million people be have terrible relationships with a showrunner when they were number one on the call sheet. And she's like, we're not going to do that. And, and I had seen it too. And we were, so it was, we like laid out everything and it was her, you know, this is what I need. And all that stuff was, she's absolutely, she was absolutely right about the things that she needed, you know, she, there were only a couple of them. And so I think that, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like with, with, with Lizzie and with having those conversations, you know, you don't, you don't want to tie your, yourself in, you know, out of respect for the rest of the people until we finish this season. I'm not even finished this season.
3: You said that you had an ending that you were aiming towards and an ending that you'd had in mind. I'm curious if the process of making the show and also the conversation we had at the very beginning about sort of the real world and how it's been intersecting with this. um, If it's colored your perception of what tone it should be at the end of what a happy ending would look like, of what a sad ending would look like as you reach the ending.
1: Well, I think the process definitely has changed, uh, you know, the tone of what I'm going to do in a couple of ways. Seeing how people react to the show along the way, and that ties a lot into the environment, the political environment. But seeing how people react to the show, you know, it, it, you know I, I'm, I'm a big mushball. When people like the show, I'm very happy, and when they don't like the show – breaks my heart, not personally, I feel bad. I feel sad that they don't like me. And so I, you know, I'm very basic about that. So I think that I, I, you know, I naturally kind of turn the show to to, I don't think things that are going to make people happy, but satisfying storytelling, you know, things that make people really, you know, be grit their teeth and be like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I really want to know what's going to happen. Um, so the sh- but the show in terms of the show and where it was going i think it's much more the the trappings than the story as i said before a lot of the things we do are are colored on the show by the environment around them but the things are not that unique you know you know nick and june have a love affair in the first season that there's nothing even slightly Gilead about it, except everything about it is Gilead. <laughs> you know, it's like they meet, they kind of are flirting, they start sleeping together, it's, you know, she, they work in the same house, so it's a little awkward, but it's incredibly weird. But it's, but it's a normal, we've seen that story a zillion times. So I think it's more about the angles of how we're going to go into things um, at the end. But in terms of the tone, I, 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 there's two answers to that question. To be perfectly honest, I don't really find the tone until I get there. Not in like a dumb way, but I'm only putting a little bit of the tone there. And and the DP and the cameraman and the production designer and the hair makeup wardrobe and then Lizzie or then OT are bringing so much. So yeah, I may I may do a really somber tone, but that's twenty percent of the tone. And if OT does it funny, it's 80-20, you know, and he's gonna win. So I, I you know, I think that it it's much more about kind of you you want to kind of I always want to feel like okay this is what the scene's about and then everybody can have their own emotions about that thing but as long as we're talking about the same thing you know this is June going through this so Lizzie can play it the way she wants and maybe someone else on the crew feels a little bit differently about it and they say oh well maybe it's a little more hopeful so she's playing it depressed and he put, and the cameraman is playing it a little hopeful and you you know you see how those two things merge but as long as we're On the right thing, you know, she's the, the, everybody is trying to tell the story. She's thinking about her daughter far away. That's what they're trying to tell. Uh, So I think that, you know, you, you expand the responsibility, but everybody is kind of telling their own story and has their own little point of view. So it does hopefully make it a little broader for the audience. And those people are all bringing their home life and fans. This show is in Canada and it's a Canadian you know, Margaret's a Canadian, you know, icon they're, you know, she's a cultural treasure, you know, there's coffee named after her there, you know, it's like unbelievable. And, uh, and so I think that they're so into the show and so into talking to their friends about the show that every season that creative pool, you know, comes back with, with, uh, you know, with more stuff for, for, for the show that's based on the real world and what's going on.
2: And we do like to wrap these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying?
1: What have I been watching and enjoying? Aside from
2: your own show, of course. Uh, I
1: watch a lot of my own show, which is the reason why I don't end up watching so much TV is not time. It's like, wow, is that a busman's holiday? You know, you really do feel, because I'm sitting and watching TV all day long. Um, I, 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 um, I watch Stranger Things with my daughter, um, immediately after it came out, and then and we also watched Murders in the Building, um, and I also watched Prey. Um, and the, the thing that I'm just really happy, the thing I'm amazed about, and you guys can speak to this, the crop of young actors that we have is so great and so fun and diverse. And you know, Selena Gomez is 30. Do you remember Selena Gomez? On you know, and, and she was great on the Wizards of Waverly Place but it was like and all of those people the, the crop of young actors you know every it is just astonishing from very very serious to very very goofy to everything in between to ones who want to produce to what uh, it is such a a pleasure that when you watch something like Euphoria the depth of that cast or or you know it, the the depth of young people on this on this in this world on television uh, it's it, peak TV is not going to have any trouble casting stuff. These people are amazing. So uh, that is one of the biggest things that, that I find. And, and the same thing with, you know, Outer Banks, when I watched Outer Banks is you're like, oh, my God, they're so they're all so good. They're all so fun and good and different and brave and, you know, smart acting and, you know, and completely, completely depending on each other, other young. Oh, anyway. It's, that's, that's the biggest pleasure. I am, um, I don't know if you guys feel that, but I definitely feel it. You know, when you put Sydney Sid, Sweeney on your show and, and, and you're like, oh my God, she's so good. And the 20 other people who auditioned for her role were as good, not quite as good, but they were good. And then McKenna Grace, you know, all those people, it's just, you, you, you feel like the they're they are doing such good work at such a young age and understand their role in the business to be something very different than the generation just slightly before. And it's inspiring.
2: Well said. Well, Bruce, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure.
1: It was so nice to be here.
3: The Handmaid's Tale returns to Hulu for season five on September 14th. Number five.
2: As usual, we wrap things up with a Critics Corner I'm not even going to rattle off what's launching this what else is launching this week because really the biggest show of the year is here it is Lord of the Rings which the, I'm I refuse to use that full title it's repetitive and redundant but dan your all, the review embargoes have lifted this is really the only show that matters this week this perhaps this year for Amazon especially and this is a show that's been in the works since 2017 when Amazon paid a massive $250 million just for the global rights alone to the beloved property. At the time, sources told me the deal covered five seasons as well as a potential spinoff. So, Dan, the review embargo for this lifted a surprising, what, two days ago now by the time this ep- our episode is out? It's surprising that it's that close to launch date, but at the same time, they basically wanted to win the Labor Day holiday. So... Take it over. What do you think?
3: Yeah, with with Amazon, I never draw any particular conclusions on the basis of when their embargoes are are set. I
2: they're not. It's not exactly the best strategy. Not not just with Lord of the Rings, the review embargo two days before launch, but in general, so much of their stuff is like last minute, or they don't want to work with us on print deadlines, or they're or they're not sending out screeners at all, which is obviously an admission that they know they have a turd, but. I don't, I don't even know. know that there's that much. Stra- I think the marketing for this has been kind of a mess.
3: Yeah, I don't I don't fully understand Amazon's strategy on a lot of things. And and I feel like there have been a lot of, you know, sometimes, as you say, if it's a turd and you set a day of review embargo, that is what it is. And I, I understand that. But there have been several shows that Amazon has had day of embargoes where they have straight up killed shows by not giving word of mouth the chance to develop. I would I would use Paper Girls as an example. That was a solidly above average show with a lot of great things about it that Amazon just killed journalistic conversation about by setting not just a day of review embargo, but an eight hour into day of premiere what? embargo. Give
2: which, me a break
3: which was just And I like that show. Yes, I thought it, I thought it was a solidly above average show that in some ways was actually really great. And I don't think they came close to giving that show a way to build buzz. And I there have been at least 3 or 4 comparable shows where they've simply buried shows that didn't deserve to be buried. They've also buried a couple shows that completely and totally deserved to be buried. And then there are the shows where they've simply decided it it doesn't matter. Uh Yes. Yeah.
2: It makes you wonder what, like, what their press strategy is or if they even give a shit.
3: I, I don't know, but that is, that is perhaps a larger conversation when the conversation that we are really having or the thing we're really talking about is, um, Lord of the Rings, the Rings of Fire or Rings of Power or Power of the Rings or Power of the Lord. Lord of the Rings, the Power of the Lord. I mean, J.R.R. Tolkien, very much with the theology and the background. So, Lord of the Rings, The Power of the Lord, could absolutely be a uh, a sequel. So yeah, so uh, Amazon has only sent out two episodes to critics, and uh, that is... I,
2: I all, Only two? I I heard some people got, what, up to six, or at least or maybe four or six total episodes? I we only
3: seen, got two. I have seen two episodes. That is what I have seen. That is what my review was based on and what my entire opinion is based on, and that is... What it is. Um, I don't think it's necessarily to the show's benefit either, because if you went and looked at reviews, an awful lot of them were like, well, I, I don't really know, <laughs> but the first two episodes are pretty good. And I think that that's, that that's my review. And I think that a lot of people are going to come in with significantly higher levels of enthusiasm or anticipation, more anticipation. Um, then I did. I, you know, as a a kid, I read some percentage of the Tolkien books. I I definitely read The Hobbit. I definitely read a couple of the Fellowship of the Ring books, etc. Um, but not all of them and definitely not on the sort of indexical level that is required to have an investment in some of these characters. Cause some of these characters are characters people know from the larger franchise as a whole. There's Galadriel. She was Cape Lanchette. Uh, there's Elrond. She, he was, uh, he was Hugo Weaving. So some of the names are going to be very, very familiar and not in the house of the dragon kind of way where people just have the same names as people in early generations. So Yes, it's King Viserys. Wasn't there a later one? Sure, but not the same guy. No, this is the same Galadriel. It is the same uh, Elrond, etc. And so I I sort of saw all of the... None of the trailers gave any indication of what the story was or who the characters was. There was nothing that got me involved on that level. And when they listed long cast lists, it sounded sort of exhausting. The actual show itself turns out to be, I would say, more appealing than that. And uh, sort of a a proviso I have to stick in front of things is that Amazon screened multiple episodes for a number of reporters slash critics who were available to see things in screening rooms. And that is something I will give them credit for as doing that was probably a smart move for this particular show. It is a big show. It is a big show, a big effects and... It really did benefit to watch it on the biggest screen possible with the best sound system possible so as to listen to Bear McCreary's score, which is, which is just phenomenal. It is a tremendous TV score. Um, and not only was a big screen obviously an opportunity to appreciate the scope of the effects, and the effects are often astounding, but it's also a way of eliminating outside stimulus. And so as a result, watching in a theater with no phones, with no computers, with nothing other than a notepad, when certain storylines caused my brain to wander, um, there I was, I was glued to my chair and... There was an immersive quality that I don't necessarily think people are going to get in their own homes. I think people in their own homes who are not interested in the yearning glimpses between the human healer and the uh, brooding elven soldier. I I think some of them at that point will go and check what's happening on Twitter or what's happening on Facebook. They will Disengage from certain parts of the story because there are dozens of characters and I do not think their characters and their storylines are created equal and being able to not find distractions absolutely benefited the show. And so my advice to people who care is as much as humanly possible, watch it on the largest screen you have available as much as humanly possible, watch it with the fewest distractions possible. But that is only if you care, like if you want to invest, if you just want to make this a casual viewing experience, then you can totally watch on your phone and whatever. I don't think that the effects are obviously going to be as good. Uh, But, you know, then you can do other things. Uh, The first episode it doesn't, it it maybe drags a little. I don't want to say it drags a lot, because it really doesn't. I was never bored. The first episode was written by the the creators, J.D. Payne and uh, Patrick McKay. And it's a hair over an hour, but it's not abusively long at times. Again, it feels like it's lagging. But what it is doing is it's establishing the world. It's establishing the universe. But more than that, even, it's establishing the capabilities to convey that world on a TV budget. Even a budget this big, and on a TV screen, and I think it does succeed at that. There are some you know, visual effect sequences that are breathtaking. There are some uh, worlds that are realized and visualized that are are quite astounding, and some you know CG creatures that are completely convincing, and then also some practical effects that are fairly uh, likable and workable. There are also long expositional monologues and lots of conversations between people about good and evil and stuff in ways that I was, you know, attention wandering. Let's just say like there are conversations early on with Elrond and Galadriel that are stultifyingly dull. They're just only probably a minute or two at or a minute or three or a minute or four at the longest. Uh But They're not good, but you kind of need them, I guess, to establish the characters and establish what the stakes of the thing are. I I have to confess also, it's not instantly clear after two episodes what the story is here. The, The story does involve Galadriel and her desire to stamp out. The forces of, of evil and, and Sauron. So there's origin story aspect there. There's a certain better call Sauron aspect to it in the prequel sense. Uh, and then in the second episode, people start talking about their desire to forge something. And you know that they're going to eventually be forging the one ring, but I don't know if that's really what the plot of the series is. It's, it's a little. Bit like, okay, we're going to throw a bunch of balls up in the air and, and hopefully we'll catch them all when they come down. And then in the sort of Lord of the Rings vein, you've got all of these storylines that are going in seven, eight different directions and that will eventually presumably come together, which is something also that, you know, Game of Thrones did. It's, it's fairly common as epic fantasy tropes go. The first episode, you feel a lot of the weight of it. The second episode I thought was much Better. The second episode is written by uh, Jennifer Hutchinson, who is a veteran of Better Call Saul and a lot of really good shows. And the second episode is where you finally get kind of actual character building and relationship building. And so if I thought that Elrond was an utter bore when he was flirting with Galadriel... I thought he was actually much more amusing when he's hanging out with uh, with his old friends, the dwarfs, inside a mountain uh, enclave that I am definitely not going to attempt to pronounce. Suddenly, a character who was dull with one character becomes fairly charming and likable with other characters. Go figure. It happens. And suddenly you start seeing little bits of humor uh, there are characters who are definitely not supposed to be called hobbits. They're definitely supposed to be called harfoots. I believe harfoots are a species or breed of hobbit or something like that. They they serve a comparable position. They're slightly smaller humanoids with hairy feet, etc. And some of those are really good because they're clearly kind of the eyes of the audience. And so you have Markella Cavanaugh who plays Nori Brandyfoot, uh, one of the harfoots, and. She's totally charming. She's got these big eyes and J.A. Bayona, who directed the first two episodes, he knows exactly how to shoot her so that her wonderment becomes our wonderment. And I think that's obviously a very important thing for a show like this. You, you have to have the people who aren't, uh, who aren't immortal warriors. You have to have the normal characters. And that's the function basically that the hobbits play in, in the earlier books. And it's the function that the heartfeet, heartfoot Har's foot, whatever it is that they play here. And, and there's good stuff with that. There are some special effects sequences across the first couple episodes that I think are, are just amazingly good. There is an attack of a sea serpent, which is central also to the, uh, the trailers for the show. And it's, it's amazing. On the other hand, anything else on water looks like they shot it in a bathtub against a, against a green screen. And some of that is, really really bad. There's there's a sequence in the in the first episode with the parting of clouds that to me looked like a Monty Python animation sequence where I almost expected a an animated version of god to appear behind the the clouds and so I was chuckling at that. I don't know that I was supposed to be chuckling at that. In the balance though, I really did have low expectations and it, it really did exceed my low expectations. If you come in with very, very high expectations, it's entirely possible you could come away very, very disappointed. I came away expecting, I, I went in thinking I don't really necessarily care. I, I did not care about the last two of the Hobbit movies that Peter Jackson made, for example. They were just too much. It was, it was just exhaustion. I don't even think I watched the third one, uh, which is, somewhat remarkable because
2: i didn't see any of the hobbit movies but i did see all the lord of the rings movies in
3: theaters i saw all of them and definitely watched also all of the director's cuts and that was a lot of stuff with the hobbit movies i did watch the first two and i didn't even think they were bad it just came time for the third one and i was like yeah i'm probably just done with this and and whatever and and so I think if you come in with high expectations and certain needs of a J.R.R. Tolkien adaptation, maybe you will have a different reaction. Uh, I came in with not vicious skepticism, but with skepticism and came away feeling like, okay, I would like to watch more episodes of this. I am I am curious. Uh, And now I am having also rewatched each of the first two episodes uh, in a on a smaller screen. I'm curious as to where my attention span is going to go once I'm just watching episodes on my TV, which is a nice TV, but which is not a fully theatrical theater with uh, comfortable seats and surround sound. So, yeah, I I like these two episodes and thought they had a lot of potential i am definitely not after two episodes prepared for any sort of grand coronation just to say this is this is a really solid start and i found it enjoyable so yeah so that is that is uh lord of the rings uh the ring of the lord um new on new on amazon
2: well, for more of Dan's Wheatley recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews for more. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast.
3: Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those suckers do help spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to hear from you guys on Twitter. Come drop by. Tell us what's working, what isn't working. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments, and we have a number on reserve from our last request, but we could always use more, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's TV's Top 5 the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie.
2: Until next week, Dan.